listeners and welcome aboard another episode of Costume Station Zero. I'm Bob Mitch and today I'm joined by my good friend Malachi Keller. Hello. Hey everybody. Uh, Malachi, uh, for those uh, who are interested, uh, did that awesome uh, new series Cyberman at Gallifrey One and is also known for his Iron Man armor work. Um, He also has an extensive background in prop making in the uh, actual motion picture industry. Um, So uh, let's just kind of tackle everything here. I I just want to start with how did you how did you get started? Uh, in the industry or in Doctor Who? Let's start with the industry. It's sort of a long, sad story, but I'll, I'll try to give the Cliff Notes version. Essentially, I was doing design work for somebody, and they wanted to get me involved with comic books. And I was doing some work for that comic book to be sold, but it never actually went anywhere. But the weird thing was that I guess the guy had connections to the movie industry through one of his friends. And I got a call literally at like four o'clock in the morning one day when the guy goes, how would you like to do spaceship designs for Hellraiser 4? So I'm like, oh, this sounds cool. And I raced down to his house and I spent a couple of hours doing designs. And then I ended up doing space station designs. And eventually it was the, it was actually picked and built as a model for the movie. And I ended up getting into the model shop through like a, a lark. And that was sort of the beginning of it, is working in this model shop, slaving away. And, and it's sort of, I, I wish I could say it was glamorous, but it, it was sort of the, the working, uh, God. It, Trial by fire? Well, I'm trying to remember, because it, it, it was sort of like, I think, uh, 18, 20-hour days. Oh, gosh. And, and I did it for like six days straight. And each one of those weeks, I was making, I think, $300 tops. So it, it, just to give you an idea of just how, how ruthless it can be on kind of the lower tier of stuff. But it's called paying your dues, and you yeah. have to kind of work up the ladder. And so that was the beginning of it. That was kind of the foot in the door. And I thought, yay, everything's great. And I ended up, that same shop moved to a bigger location. Everything looked on the up and up. And then it just it, it died. Ooh. There was no work. There was no nothing. And luckily, one of the other guys in the shop was doing costume stuff. So I sort of moved over into that. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of the whole foam fabrication stuff as I learned those techniques. And that saved me because the rest of the shop folded. The building they were in, I mean, it was it was like some crazy movie thing because you're talking um, easily like a 6,000 square foot facility oh, yeah. that disappeared in the middle of the night. Oh. Literally, they came in the middle of the night with a truck and just everything I, I i actually lost tools and stuff i, oh. I mean yeah it's it i definitely one of these days i'm going to sit down and write a book about all these sort of experiences because i honestly believe people won't believe what i write wow. <laughs> in there now, it's what, just crazy what year was this that you started oh my god uh i want to say 92 
90, 92, somewhere in there. Somewhere in there, okay. Because um, I know that I'm pretty sure 93 was when I got into a place called Proper Effects. And that was sort of the beginning of my, my for, <laughs> if you'll pardon the pun, my proper uh, sort of stint in the industry. Okay. Um, that was uh, that facility. Um, I did Star Trek. I did uh, Alien 4. Um, I did... Uh, a number of like high profile projects and it was one of those prop shops that sort of the uh, the owner was friends with a lot of prop masters and that's sort of how this works is that if you're friends and that prop master goes to a show you're usually the first guy they call so that shop was great because I actually got offered Dante's Peak and I turned it down to stay in the shop because every week there was something different and it was kind of really creatively mm. fun to keep working on different things every week and as opposed to okay I'm stuck on you know something like like making mountains for you know six right. months on something so right Right, right. Uh, now, when you say Star Trek, are you referring specifically to Deep Space Nine, Next Generation, or um, all of the above? Deep Space Nine for a couple of seasons. Um, First Contact, Nemesis, and there was a little bit of stuff on Voyager, just a, a hair, because most of Voyager went to another company called MEL. Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, it was a it was sort of interesting because. Um, Star Trek definitely, I used to love the show, and then working on the show sort of made me bitter about it. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's it, it's one of those things that, um, I, I mean, I've told this story a lot of times, but um, essentially try to imagine that you are working seven days a week. You get part of Sunday off if you're lucky, but more than likely you never have a weekend off. And it was all because of Star Trek. Almost every single time, Star Trek would send us a drawing on, like, a Wednesday saying we need, like, let's say a dozen of these phasers by Friday mm -hmm. for shooting. And then inevitably, like, the, the, the shop owner knew this, too. So so I, I was sort of clued in as I went along. But you would spend all night Wednesday building the prototype so you could get into a mold on Thursday so you could, you know, hopefully get the parts out by maybe Friday morning so you mm -hmm. could be painting them. I mean, it's just this crazy schedule. Mm -hmm. And, well, you would get a new drawing probably uh, Thursday afternoon with a totally different look now to it. Now they'd want twice as many with stunt pieces, which are like rubber versions and heroes, which are resins. Right. And then they'd want those Monday morning, 6.30 a.m., so almost every weekend was just gone whenever Star Trek was, whenever Deep Space Nine was shooting. And my understanding was that um, some of the older guard that had left the facility, when I got the chance to talk to them later, they told me that uh, Next Generation was the same way. It was sort of this really mismanaged way of handling things where the show would get a lot of money in the beginning mm -hmm. and you would do all these like enormous amount of stuff for like the pilot or a couple of episodes and then they'd run out of money and they would kind of bleed through the whole season where there'd be a lot of recycled stuff there'd be no money to do new stuff but yet you would get new drawings and it was this very complicated way of, of like dancing around things and then the end of the season you might get more money but now at this point you're sort of trying to pay back the previous the whole season where you didn't have any money and you kind of struggled through it but it was always sort of a last minute afterthought i mean even though you need a prop and you need it in your hands during shooting 
it was never like that. It was always a, a sort of, we're worried about the writing, we're worried about, um, you know, casting, we're worried about all the first unit stuff, but we were almost always considered almost like a second unit type thing. Sure, yeah. I mean, th those are crazy tight turnaround schedules. I, I, oh, don't, yeah. I don't know how you cope with that, to be honest. <laughs> well, the, see, the funny part is that, uh, I, I mean, I, I sit here and talk about it in this fashion now, but um, the... I believe it still goes at sort of that schedule, and and, and that's sort of the. I'm sure there's somebody out there kind of num, uh, uh, throwing their, uh, they're, they're rolling their eyes at me, going, you know, oh God, you're you're whining too much because that's you know the art of the business. That's mm -hmm. you know this is what you you long for is that challenge and mm -hmm. such. And for me, I sort of I enjoy making things, but I, I like like it to be at a sort of a comfortable schedule so that I can think things through. And right. that was sort of where the true talent of the artisans come in is that the people that really thrived in this business that have been there for 20 years are the ones that you can really think on your feet. Someone can tell you, uh, make a demand and literally in 10 minutes, you can turn it around and give it back to them. Those are the people that they love on set. Those are the unsung heroes. Mm -hmm. And pretty much 85% of those people are people that you'll never know their names. They don't want to be known. It's the other, the kind of the ones that, that stand out and want their name known big and stuff. Those are sort of the, the charlatans in the industry because they, they run the shops. They, um, they, they have a big ego about things and they're great salesmen. But when it comes to the actual true craftsmen, the craftsmen almost never want to be like right in the spotlight they much rather do the work collect their check and get out of there but know? within this niche within this world they're obviously known so they do keep getting the work clearly oh yeah that's that, that's sort of the magic of it is that it's all a word of mouth game sure the, the more you work because like at the height of my industry work i was at um four different places mm -hmm. i think simultaneously wow i was literally working like during the day at one prop shop mm -hmm. then i would go for like three or four hours at another place at night and then on the weekends i might do the same thing two different shops mm -hmm. like day and night and it does it burns you out real fast i mean unless you got the stamina for it and this was when i didn't have any girlfriends i was pretty much living by myself and and you you do your health will decline. You got to be careful because you have this tendency to rush around and like only eat fast food and, mm -hmm. and never get enough sleep and mm -hmm. such. So, so yeah, you can definitely hurt yourself. And, and that was part of my problem was that I was sort of, you know, young and, and impressionable and, and I just loved doing it. And I was having so much fun doing it that for one, I was doing it for very low rate. There was a lot of people around me making twice what I was making and they, they were sort of the old guard and yeah. they, sometimes would show you stuff but there there is definitely um a tendency to not show people things and to kind of keep secrets i i'm actually the opposite of that i i like to try and tell people things and i know that i'm probably shooting off my own foot because there are younger people that take that information and kind of make money with it but um but yeah it, it was sort of this coveted secret a lot of the stuff and you would have to work for sometimes years next to somebody before they would trust you to like show you some of the things that would make time management worked very well for you that was why they were getting paid a lot of money it didn't take them very long to make things i mean there's all these really cool tricks that you can employ to make things very fast mm -hmm. and i mean there was a saying that i was always taught uh, that model makers are the laziest people in the industry and it was be because of that simple fact that they did not want to work very hard on something so they would teach themselves some very clever tricks to get things done accurately and quickly and 
you know, make it look beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, I know within uh, cosplay, uh, I always champion, uh, just as you do, that it's good to share the knowledge, it's good to share the craft, and not everybody takes that on board. Uh, I, I can understand it in certain cases, and it sounds like certainly on a professional level, um, these are tricks people would try to keep so that it made sure that they would keep getting rehired, they would have less competition, who, oh, yeah. could, who could turn out the work at the same rate, right? Oh, yeah. That yeah. makes sense. And, and you get a lot of a lot of young punks that come in, and they, they take that information, and they, they run with it. And the, the thing that I've noticed about a lot of um, sort of model makers or fabricators or costume fabricators and such, we, we have a tendency to be sort of... Um, uh, not as outgoing as you know other people and we're only sort of that you don't see you see us blossom around our own crowd but mm-hmm. when it comes to sort of the high pressure situations of like let's say facing the producers or dealing with the art directors or you know all the, the higher ups there's there's sort of this reluctance to do that and the young sort of punks of the industry as i call them were the ones that would do that they would step up they'd become the salesmen and they would rise the ranks quickly i mean i I knew people that would come in bullshitting that they could do everything that i was doing Mm -hmm. and they couldn't even do half of it Mm -hmm. but yet they were my boss within three days they were making twice what i was making by the end of the show they were the ones firing me because i was sitting there trying to go above them saying hey this guy is you know evil get rid of him he's poison and then i would end up getting kicked out with a bad rep and he you know they would stay on and rise to you know more power and it was all because they had you know a more um they knew how to work the game they knew how to work the politics exactly exactly mm-hmm. and and that's that's something that i've generally hated to do is the, is the political end of things i it, it's a very um diplomatic way of handling things and and i'm sort of more direct i i'm i very blunt about things mm-hmm. you know if you want something don't kind of dance around it tell me exactly what you want and i'll either tell you yes i can or no i can't and it's people i guess the diplomatic way or or the 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 schmoozing way to do that is Mm -hmm. sort of being very charming and convince you that you can do it even if you don't believe you can Mm -hmm. and convince you and then you end up saying you know what you're right i can do that in fact you know what i'm going to prove to you i can do that and i'm going to say no you don't don't pay me a dime i'm going to do this out of my own pocket and you know and then suddenly at the end of the whole thing you're realizing wait a second i just got screwed and in fact i screwed myself Mm -hmm. and this guy helped me along you know and girl i mean i've known some women that are just as big sharks (laughs) so sure not not gender blind of course no no so i mean in in amongst this sounds like you know there were challenges uh but you know you uh you generally enjoyed yourself despite these obstacles and adversities i uh, there were so many things i learned that i use now every day and i'm constantly kind of relearning old tricks and, and amazing myself that that my memory you know retains this information even though i may not recall it all the time but for that alone I'd almost recommend that anybody that really likes to do this sort of thing, be it costume making, be it you know fabrication, be it prop building, sets, whatever, there really is a truly eye-opening experience in sort of slaving in the trenches because you, you see so much and sort of the disillusionment that they present in sort of the making of DVDs and right. such, the behind-the-scenes stuff like, oh, yeah, it was easy. You know, we, we, we spent a night on it and everything was great. You know, it's sort of... That, that small sentence and then the, the realization of sitting there that whole night and working it out, it really does open your eyes to mm-hmm. the how amazingly talented the people are that do this and how incredibly amazing that they, they actually accomplish what they do. I mean, you watch these shows mm-hmm. and writing is almost the same thing too, is that I, because that's, that's sort of a thing that I, that I toy with is screenwriting and 
it's the same sort of thing. Try to imagine that you're writing episodes, sometimes only in like three or four days, and they're shooting them within two or three days after that. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing, the, the editing it and the effects and all that, another couple of days and voila, it's airing. I mean, sometimes it constricts the schedule down to literally five days from beginning sure. to end. Sure. And, and you just, you see these episodes. I mean, Doctor Who's a great example. Mm-hmm. And you can see this stuff and you're like, oh my God, that's amazing what I'm watching. Just try to imagine those people working under such incredible deadlines, such mm-hmm. insane pressure. Mm-hmm. And they were still the most creative they could ever be. Mm-hmm. And to get through all the problem solving. Because that's really what it is. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's all just problem solving. Robert Culp, uh, I know, famously said in one of his interviews that uh, directing television is just directing traffic and that's not meant as a slant it's because there isn't time usually to do much more than that and i think that actually goes for a lot of areas uh, of tv where when you see great television uh it is a bit of a miracle uh because they're they're producing under such um, adverse circumstances i think the exception would be um obviously any pilot usually has more time behind it and i think certain high prestige shows like hbo tends to uh, shoot a lot longer but even still there's there's tight deadlines to keep in mind i mean, I mean the trick that they employed i know on trek was that we would shoot things out of order obviously so if you were a good scheduling person you were end up uh, you would have a tendency to let's say shoot scenes from episode three right next to scenes from episode six and then you would go to like um let's say your exteriors were getting rained out so you would go into the stages and you always would shoot like filler episodes so you might shoot like 10 11 and 12 back to back in the stages in one day and then go out and try to finish your pickup shots for your three and six and things like that but that's how that works is that scheduling wise you try to do that so that you're never there's never a stopped moment you constantly in production right and then in terms of editing them obviously yeah i i I knew numerous times where it you know you're you're doing an episode and it says it's 13 but it wouldn't even air until it was like 22 Mm -hmm. and and that was because for some reason you know the episode it, it isn't like episodic television now where it almost has to go in order right back then you could shuffle it all over the place so it aided them because there were many times where an episode couldn't get done or something happened and they'd go okay we're not going to air that we're going to suddenly shift this episode that's already done up into its slot mm-hmm. and nowadays yeah I, I don't know if you can do that because everybody's all about no this is episode 20 and it's got to be followed by 21 because so-and-so got shot last episode and we need to see what happened this episode and right the the era of arc storytelling Oh, yeah. uh, here to stay and you're right episodic or standalone television is uh, not nearly as common um, the uh, the thing I, I do find interesting is whenever I introduce people to older television shows uh, certainly uh, prior to <laughs> mm, late 90s uh, there is often that oh well I have to start at the beginning <laughs> and you know beyond maybe a pilot it's like you know you can really just jump in anywhere because that's what we used to do when we discover a show I, I don't know I can't think of many shows I actually started at a pilot stage when I was a kid you just discovered it liked it and oh, watched it i when know it was on. God, for me uh that was airwolf it was sort of i i watched part of it when i was growing up mm-hmm. and i remember seeing the pilot movie when it first aired but many years later i sort of came back to it when they started re-airing it on channel five that's mm-hmm. uh, california la out here and i had a book a japanese book that had all the episodes listing mm-hmm. so i was checking them off because i was taping them and i was just amazed i like i come one day and it's you know uh, episode from second season then the yeah. next day it's an episode from first season and he just kept jumping around and i'm like thank god there's no continuous storyline here because i'd be lost beyond <laughs> belief you know? so 
Yeah, it, it, it's a very different time now. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I, it's like I miss it in a way, but I mean, the arc, good arcs definitely allow for richer storytelling. On the other hand, sometimes they bog it down and you just want a good one hour story. So. You're right. You're right. And I believe that most shows nowadays ask for that. They mm-hmm. they sort of, even if you come in in like sort of your your grandiose, I'm Joss Whedon and I can dictate what I want sort mm-hmm. of show running, um, I believe, yeah, the studios still say, yes, you can have a loose sort of mythology going in your first season, but... Yeah, that that's just an arc of characters. What mm-hmm. we're really after is a bunch of mixture of episode stylings and and moods, so mm-hmm. we can really capture the audience because we don't want you to come in with one solid mood all the way through mm-hmm. and lose your demographic. We want you to kind of get as wide as you can and capture as many people in the net. Then during second season, if you've won that honor, then you can begin hardcore mythology and go really nuts at that point. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons why X-Files worked so well at the time, because it really did have a mythology going for it, but that didn't start solidifying or even begin to really go anywhere until middle of second season. No, and that right. part of that was because the writers had come in and sort of um, you know, smacked around the showrunner and gone, you know, hey, Carter, this is what you need. And, and they took over and they started writing those episodes. And that's when you saw sort of consistency of quality. But before that, yeah, it was all across the board. It was like, you know, creature of the week and monster mm-hmm. of the week and things of that nature. And I think Doctor Who is doing a lot of that same thing. I mean, you can still see arced mythology going on with the characters, but yeah. almost always it's within the realm of, you know, individualized episodes. Sure, sure. Uh, so, so working in this environment, I, I always ask people, hey, uh, what, what, <laughs> how crazy does it get when you have to work to a deadline? And what was your most stressful costume or, or whatnot? I mean, actually, you, you worked it and lived it, it sounds, for many a years. I mean, oh, yeah. part and parcel. So you're very used to the, the looming deadline. And, and I still screw it up. I mean, I, I admit that um, more often than not, and, and maybe I got this from working, at these different shops, but you you shoot for sort of that deadline and you try to manage your time so that you end up like right at that deadline. Mm-hmm. But almost always you start out in this kind of casual way for the first week. Let's mm-hmm. say you've got four weeks to, to right. build something. By the second week, you're starting to pick up pace, but you're still sort of moving. And just even by the third week, panic is starting to set in. Yeah. So now, now you're starting to like move a little faster, but you're still like, I got another week. And it's like that last week before it's due, you're up all night. You're mm-hmm. like three days straight just before the deadline. Yeah. You're killing yourself. You're mm-hmm. bringing in extra people. You're blowing all this money you never planned on blowing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's crazy how it happens. But it's it's like only like the best run stuff is really the the good ones and I, and I know for a fact you know like legacy effects I mean they they you know Stan Winston's place I mean they all the Iron Man stuff I have friends that tell me that they still run under those horrible deadlines of oh, like yeah. the night before painting pieces and then you know you ship half of it to set and then you're you're spending all your money overnighting the rest of it because you're finishing it mm-hmm. you know because you couldn't get it to the truck when they came to pick it up so yeah it, it's um Deadlines are sort of a way of life, and I think that you know when when you accept the challenge of the deadline, yeah, yeah, just be prepared that yeah you're gonna you're gonna have a couple of all nighters. Just accept that, mm-hmm. and you won't be so um, so angry at the end. So uh, for for those who obviously don't work in the industry and maybe do not have aspirations to do so, and we're back to regular cosplayers, I always say that uh, know your deadline. 
uh, which usually is a convention or, or a fan film or some kind of masquerade event. Um, and uh, <laughs> But I, I know you are famous for still finishing sewing <laughs> costumes at the convention. Well, okay, I can't say I'm too famous because um, our, our mutual friend... Um, uh, what is it, uh, Brian Little and um, Metahedon? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 I got to know them at the last galley, but the galley before that, I saw them in the halls, you know, still like hot gluing stuff together, and it was so funny because this time around, I was in the room with them trying to help them. Yes. And this was one of the few times. I mean, my wife's adipose costume, the giant adipose, she was sewing on the arms like the night before the masquerade, mm-hmm. and. I, yeah, I was helping her try to get the skin on and stuff. And, and we knew these challenges were coming, but it was sort of sometimes no matter how much you plan, you have to kind of, you know, you're sitting, you're getting the costume ready, but in the back of your mind, you're still being lazy about it because you're like, oh, well, I, I can pack now and I can, I got to arrange things for the kids and I, oh, I got to figure out my hotel. And I, I mean, it's all this last minute stuff and, mm-hmm. and you do, you, in your mind, it's always pack the set kit, right. which is, you know, your tools, your, your, your glues i mean a last galley i brought um yeah i brought uh like three kinds of glues i brought paints i brought primers i brought an entire uh soldering and electronics kit even though i i wasn't I, the only electronics i had was for the cyberman but we were toying with the idea of trying to get um fans into her suit and such uh-huh. and none of that happened none of it happened even though i, I brought extension cords i brought <laughs> I, I mean i i go nuts when it comes to set kits and part of that is from those old movie days because i know that I, I hated going to set because it was usually for me was the most challenging but if you were really good about the pieces you made before they went to set it was a breeze. I mean, being on set was a lot of fun. You got to eat the catering. You got to hang out with the actors. You got to schmooze with everybody. But it just seemed like every time I went on set, oh, yeah, I, I was like the whipping boy. <laughs> you know? It was just like, this doesn't work. Ah, you know, the producer's like breathing over your neck. I mean, there's a great famous story that I've been told about um, uh, 1941 with Steven Spielberg right. directing and how the model tanks and stuff would never work they they were just it was just all rc stuff that had been pushed to the limit to try and you know accommodate everything he was trying to do and this guy is fixing this tank and he's trying to go as fast as he can because right. everyone's standing around right. so steven comes up to him and leans over him like real close and he says you see all those people there they're waiting on you oh. <laughs> and i'm like wow I think I think I might have actually tried to stab him with a screwdriver if he had done something like that to me. But I know that I, I've I've been there before, and yeah, you you just you try to zone out everything else, and you just focus on it. And I'm sure it's the same sort of thing. You know, you know the masquerade is an hour away, and you're right. like, ah, so faster! <laughs> <laughs> Why is the Michelle God the bobbin up? <laughs> so like the wind, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, we we all know that sort of thing. I mean. For me, the conventions nowadays, yeah, I try to make sure that the majority of my work is done because most of what I do in terms of the foam and such is something you can't do in a hotel room. It's got toxic, you know, sort of glue fumes. So mm-hmm. I can only imagine trying to paint. And I, I, it's just, yeah, the, the, the alarms would go off. The right. fire marshal would show up. So I, I'm sort of forced into that notion of, I have to get my stuff done before I go there. And even then, um, like at Comic-Con, I was in the parking garage. We, I, I discovered 
outlets in places you never thought possible. Oh, and, yeah. Uh-huh. And yeah, I, I realize now that there are outlets in hallways, in <laughs> hotels, there's outlets in bathrooms, <laughs> and there's outlets in parking garages. <laughs> so, so yes, you, you find ways to like steal electricity so you yeah. can get that hot glue gun going. That's like your greatest friend, you know, the hot glue gun. The hot glue gun. Solves almost everything. Almost everything. I mean, there are some things that just you will ruin using hot glue, but, <laughs> but when you're like... 10 minutes from the, from stage time, you don't care. Right. You're hot glue and you're like, okay, I know I'm going to ruin this, but if I can get on stage and I can get that award, then I'll worry about it when I get home. I'll, <laughs> I'll rip it apart and I'll rebuild it later. <laughs> and it's funny too, because half the time you just leave it. You leave it for like two conventions until sure. it falls apart. So. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, does it, does it do what it needs to do when it's needed? Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, which is almost really a motto of getting it on set, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> well, no, it's true. It's like when you see some of these props up close that you think are so amazing on screen, and you finally handle oh, them, you're like, oh, that's man. not nearly as cool as there, I thought it would be. It's hard to visualize this, um, uh, obviously, since everybody's listening, but um, um, I'm holding up my hand. And I'm essentially like shaking it back and forth vigorously. This was what I was told was how the camera perceives your prop (laughs) more than once. And yet I would scream at people like, then why are they nitpicking the fact that the color is wrong? I mean, oh, that that was, oh man, this is a story I'm sure everybody who's ever worked in the industry has known. But for people that haven't worked in it, it's, to me, it's very funny, but Mm -hmm. You, you would always have to do what they call dog and pony or show and tell ones where in the middle of your constricted schedule, you would have to go and show the piece you're working on in stages to make sure that it was getting done. Uh-huh. And and they would come to the shop sometimes. So most of the time, you'd have to like go to them. So uh-huh. you'd have to like stop everything you're doing, somehow cart it into a car up to the stage. I mean, it, it was crazy sort uh-huh. of restrictions. But I know that more than once, you would go to the main producer of the show and you would have the prop and you'd say okay this is primer gray it's not going to be this color but you know here here what do you think and the producer would look at it kind of turn it over in his hands and he'd be like is it going to be this color (laughs) (laughs) and you literally told him like and you just have to bite your lip and go uh, no, it's going to be uh, a darker shade of that color. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's all sorts of stories I could tell you, endless stories about you know the, those moments. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so, I, I, out of all that craziness, do you, do you have a, a project or item that you worked on that was a favorite? Oh boy, God, I knew you were going to hit me with that one. Um, I know that some of the projects that I had fun with were um, sort of Power Rangers stuff. It had a very sort of constricted schedule worse than your normal schedules, but sometimes it was a whole lot of fun because you got to freeform things. It wasn't quite as stick to the drawing, um, but I know that um, like sometimes I, like Alien 4, I had a lot of fun. Uh, like they, there's a, the, I did the drink machine in the captain's quarters oh, on okay. Alien Resurrection, mm-hmm. and um I actually had time to engineer like little gadget tricks into it that they used on set. So I was very happy about that. And um, those are the moments that I remember. But I I hate to say it, like a lot of the stuff that I did for myself after hours was the stuff that really stuck with me because those were the times when I was really learning. I mean, they would teach you stuff, but you wouldn't have time to sort of absorb it. Mm -hmm. I would take those tricks and then usually every day after work, I'd spend a couple of hours working on my own stuff. And I would try to employ or um, 
uh, engineer the same sort of tricks. Mm -hmm. So you were constantly experimenting, and it would teach you new things. And, they, and that was the sort of the stuff that stuck with me. But uh, I mean, yeah, for me, the the stories of woe are more what stayed with me. Oh, right sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you can load me up with uh, the classic. So tell me your your uh, biggest costume mishap story. Yeah. And, and I have to admit, a lot of the best stories that I tell are are secondhand stuff that's been told to me by friends who went to set. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've got numerous Starship Trooper stories that are just I, some of them I, I don't even think I can say out loud, but they are <laughs> they are so funny, and they come from friends who you know mm -hmm. like me built the stuff but then they were the ones that were sent to set to work on it mm -hmm. and, and hold on to it because yeah that they they were cooler under pressure <laughs> right right um so so you were already uh, after hours working on your own um i assume just either pet projects or were you already getting into costuming or these are just prop pieces? actually yeah i was um the first year that i was involved with stuff i was i was already experimenting with costume pieces because uh, i was oh let's see um the first shop we we uh, dealt with fiberglassing and vacuum forming so i already knew kind of your basics of your your armor stuff mm -hmm. but then when i started doing the foam fabrication stuff that taught me about undersuits that taught me about um sewing and gusseting and uh how to do where to, where to put your flex points and and how to kind of dress a costume so that you can still move in it mm -hmm. that was a very big thing that I think a lot of people overlook is that they'll see these wonderful costumes on set or they'll see them in the in the show and you're watching them on on there and they're only shooting them from like the waist up or you get a full view shot and they're walking but they're only walking for like a couple of seconds and people don't realize that sometimes just a few seconds of walking was agony for the actors because mm -hmm. They couldn't move in some of these things. <laughs> I mean, they're literally like being strapped in. Like C-3PO is a great example of that. Mm -hmm. You get bolted into a suit and you can't even lift your arms up. You're like, oh, oh, oh I can't even raise my hand above my nose. You know? Right, right. Yeah, and, and some of this stuff is like that mm -hmm. when you deal with like fiberglass and vacuum form. Because all of that stuff is, it's designed to be hard and solid and not move. Right. <laughs> and so, but, um, but yeah, I... Um, the second shop, the, the Star Trek shop, um, I started experimenting. There was a trick um, that we did for Starship Troopers where all the armor was done with EST rubber backed by polyfoam. Now, what that is is that the rubber is a – it's like a car bumper rubber. It's really hard and stiff. But right. but um, when you put it into a mold, it's in a liquid form. And if you do it thin enough, it's actually quite flexible. And then we would back it with foam. And it's sort of like the like your mattress foam, except we could pour it as a chemical and it would expand. Sure. And then we had like molds where we would press it together to kind of condense the foam and then give it shape on the inside. I know that the helmets had um, this thing that the, this guy had engineered called rabbit ears because mm -hmm. they literally looked like a rabbit with ears mm -hmm. but when you pulled it out you fold the feet down you took the ears and, and tucked them in and that became the foam padding in the helmet oh. and, and it kind of you know it was very cute how all these things work but I got fascinated by that stuff and so I used that same technique to make a, a head-to-toe suit for myself which is long gone but I, I think i have a couple of pictures of it still and it, it looks really cool but it it was a very big learning lesson because the molding was done um with vacuum form you you mm -hmm. would basically create a buck uh made of like wood or plastic and then you would heat um uh plastic pull it down over the shape and then hit a vacuum and it would suck it tight to the form right and then you would cool it 
and once it was cold, you could actually kind of shake the inner buck out, and you'd have this hollow cavity that was lightweight, but it would still had that form. Well, I was creating stuff that was laid flat, like a pattern in a, in a, a sort of dress, and then I was doing this EST rubber thing into this complex shape with the foam, and then when I pulled it out of the mold, I would actually fold it and shape it and strap it to itself and tie wrap it and glue it, and that would give me this like leg or this arm piece that was all now in this shape. And and it's sort of the all those sort of engineering thoughts. It just everything kept going through my head. I'm like, oh wow, let's try this, let's try that. You know, how crazy can I get mm -hmm. to experiment with all this stuff? And and that was the fun part. After hours was constantly. I mean, yeah, I, I started making costumes almost from the beginning. I mean, w when I was younger, mm -hmm. I, I, I wish I had the photos now. I did Robocop out of cardboard oh, when I was like awesome. eight years old, I think, or something. And mm -hmm. I, I even did a Prowl from the Transformers. And my friend did Voltron. Uh -huh. God, I, I, I've got to find that picture, man. It would be a great one to post on on the Facebook page. But it's really cute. I mean, and, and you will definitely look at it and go, my God, you know, you're, you're like, you know, eight years old. And mm -hmm. that looks great for cardboard. And, and back then I was like, oh, this is terrible. Oh, you know, <laughs> just, you know my, my second best effort. I, I mean, even back then I was, yeah, I was definitely pushing myself way too hard. Not screen accurate enough. Not screen accurate <laughs> exactly, enough. Exactly, yeah. No eight-year-old really has any business saying that in my opinion. <laughs> But we do it. We do it to ourselves. In our, in our head, we say it in a different way. We do. Oh, we, would, yeah. we would articulate it like that. Oh, yeah. I, I think mine was always, I'll do it better next time. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. So I, I do always ask, uh, what uh, what do you consider your first costume then? Would it be the RoboCop? Wow. My first costume? No, I think it was the Prowl. I, I think it was the Autobot Prowl. Back then, I, yeah, I was really into Transformers. My first Transformer was Sideswipe, and I, I don't know why I didn't do him. I guess I, I thought Prowl was cooler. That's but for some reason, Optimus Prime wasn't as big as everyone thought he was. I mean, well, he, he was, was he was in my neck of the woods. Wow, okay. Yeah, it, it was sort of like, you know, all the cars were out. Mm -hmm. Finding, like, Soundwave was a miracle. Yeah. The, the Jets was a miracle. Uh -huh. But, um, but like, yeah, you could go to the store, and they were the, 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 the shelves were flooded with cars. So yeah. you could constantly get Ratchet or Iron Iron or, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they they were like sold by like I, I honestly think the case was ten of those and like three of the other cars. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, but um, but yeah, it it's sort of um, that was the beginning of it. It was um, really loving that stuff, and then of course you see the cartoon and that's it. You know, mm. you're you're off and running when you see yeah because the cartoon designs were almost always very costume friendly, and that's mm -hmm. sort of that was the beginning also of a lot of uh, drawing and designing for me because I would pause the thing, I would draw it from the screen, and I I was actually for a time there I could draw. I think about five different Transformers from memory. Mm -hmm. I might still be able to do it for Prime and Megatron because I drew them enough times, but right. I would do that. I, I was one of those kids that would come to school the next day after an episode aired, and I already had drawings, like character <laughs> sheets of, of the, the new characters. Nice. And, and people were like, oh my God, where'd you get that? And I'm like, oh, I drew it last night. Oh, come on. You, you want to make a costume of this? And they're like, are you nuts? <laughs> yeah, so... I, I, I was very ambitious as a child. If you'd had your way, you'd have the entire class doing uh, all Transformers. Oh, oh, yeah. No, I tried. <laughs> More than once in the art class, I tried to get everybody painting Transformers on walls. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, the teacher was like, no, 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 no. We'll, we'll paint one in this wall, yeah. but we got to paint something else on the other sure. wall. Uh, did you ever consider doing Grimlock? I did, actually. But he was, for some reason, he didn't become like my favorite character sure. until the comic book mm -hmm. when the Dinobots sort of became more important in the comic which was very early on mind mm -hmm. you but 
they just for some reason in the cartoon I hated the fact that he was just a dumb character and I was like yeah. I, I, I always wanted Grimlock I always imagined him I guess when I first saw the, the images I was like wow this guy is going to be like the coolest character like the, mm-hmm. the second only to Optimus Prime which was ironic with the way they wrote the show I sort of second guessed that just by looking at him that uh-huh. he would fight for supremacy over leadership at times and when they had him like oh me Grimlock I was yeah, like ah yeah. oh, what are you doing yeah <laughs> so I think that kind of killed it for me and going, mm-hmm. no, I don't want to do that costume. <laughs> so uh, did you always follow on, on kind of armored characters like RoboCop and the Transformers? Yeah, I was always a robot guy. Uh-huh. Um, for some reason, I just, fantasy was not my deal. Mm-hmm. Like uh, my mother had tried to get me reading The Lord of the Rings. Sure. And I think I started, I picked up The Hobbit and got about 20 pages in and went, I just can't handle this. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, but like robot stuff, yeah. Mm-hmm. Whenever there was any robot thing, like a, a new robot thing uh, on a show, on a cartoon, whatever, I, I was always like, oh yeah, let me draw that, let me play with that. I mean, the only creature thing that ever stayed with me was the alien. Okay. And that was probably because my brother was drawing him before I was. Mm-hmm. And my brother is a makeup artist in his own right. He, he does all the special effects makeup, and that's probably where my interest in special effects makeup comes from. But, um, yeah, he drew the alien, and I, it was such a cool drawing. I traced his. I traced his like three times trying to get that same look, and the alien is another thing that I can draw from memory because I, I got the figure. It was funny, too. It was one of those great stories. I'm the, sure the you have figure? them. The yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, it was a place called Two Guys when we were living in New York, and... Um, my mother went there and she's like, so you can have two Star Wars figures or you can have the alien here, the big figure. And I'm like, oh, no contest. Give me the alien. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm sure everybody's like, no, go for the Star Wars. I'm like, ah, screw Star Wars. I want the alien. <laughs> yeah. No, I can understand that. Yeah, the alien was very, very impressive. Yeah, I, I mean, the design definitely to this day is still one of those things that you just look at and go, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So moving into uh, adulthood, you're you know working in the industry and you're working on pet projects and so forth. What what do you consider your first? Um, I, I wouldn't say professional, but you know your your first. Okay, I'm going to go to a convention or go to a particular event in a cost. Oh wow! Um, first reproduction, as it were. Sure. You know, um, hmm, that's uh, that's another good one. Oh man. Um, it's funny too because I, I sort of went backwards. Um, I I my father tried to steer me away from doing replicas of things. It was always about do your own stuff, sure. be original, be unique. Sure. And for many years, I would do all this original stuff, and nobody would recognize it. Yeah, <laughs> well, be like, that's, that's kind of cool, but what the hell is that? You know, and and so that that definitely got me frustrated and going, no, no, I'm going to start doing replica stuff. Um, God, I'm trying to think of the the first thing I really went crazy with. Um. Oh, God. I know there's stuff before this, but this is the one that sort of stays in my mind. Um, the Green Goblin from the first Spider-Man. Okay. Uh, the, 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 Sam, the, the same. Wire? Yeah, yeah. The same Raimi one. Got it. Um, I, I did some other stuff before that. I do recall it, but for some reason that one stays with me because um, I just... I guess it was one of those first times where I said, you know what, damn it, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it awesome mm-hmm. and even though people are calling it the mighty Morphin green goblin yeah i'm gonna love that i'm gonna own that because i love power rangers okay. yeah. and, and it's funny because the i have this great story about that where i was making that but i was also working uh my um one of my good friends uh pete is uh, a computer animator 
and he was working for uh, Foundation Imaging, or Foundation, uh, I think it was, yeah, it's Foundation. Um, but uh, they were doing uh, the Starship Troopers cartoon. They were calling it Roughnecks. Mm -hmm. And he he and I were kind of just joking. He said, oh, we're doing a party at Foundation. I'm like, God, I'd love to go to one of those parties. And he's like, well, it's a costume party. What do you want to do? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, dude, we got to do the armor. Got to okay. do the armor from the yeah. thing. So... I think that might have been the first time I'd actually publicly did something because in three days we did two suits and, and it, it nearly killed us. I, Ooh, I mean, but, wow. but that's, that was me back then was just like, oh, I'm going to do it. Yay. <laughs> you know? and, and you didn't have much of a social life going on right now, did you? Uh, no, no, I, I did. But I, I, I apologize to all of my previous girlfriends because I definitely, <laughs> there were so many times like, I oh, know, honey, I can't go out tonight. I've got to finish this, you know, or. Or can you come over? Oh no, you know what? No, no, no! Don't come over. You're a distraction. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, mm -hmm. but um, but yeah, we made those and we went to the party and literally, a, definitely a case of gluing things like just before you get in the car. Yeah. Paint drying. You leave the windows open so yeah. paint dries in the wind. Yep. So I mean, I definitely started off exactly the way you should, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and yeah, we went to the party, had a great time, and everybody recognized him. We we got lots of uh, you know compliments, like "Wow, this is amazing!" I actually made him on a lark, um, and this is probably the first time beginning that sort of outside of the professional thing doing replica props, the gun from the show. But I made it out of solid wood because I wanted it to be heavy. Okay. And he I, he told me later they actually used that for the mocap stages because everyone loved that thing. It was like up until that point they'd been holding a stick. Ah. And and when they, they they were asking me if they, you know, they were like, "Hey, can you get like 10 more of these things?" <laughs> and he's like, "I don't think he could make 10 more." But but it was a point of, yeah, definitely um, when you're doing motion capture, it helps to have something of weight so that when you're holding it, you hold it differently. Right. You know, when you're trying to pretend that you're holding a heavy weapon, there's quite a difference between holding that and an actual piece of metal True. in your hands. You're just like, oh, my God. I, okay, yeah, I'm not going to hold it up to my upper chest. I'm going to keep this lower to my hip yeah. because it's that heavy and, yeah. it, and it's going to hurt to hold it higher. So, yeah, that, that was like the first time I did that. And then I remember um, when episode one came out, I saw a picture of uh, Darth Maul's lightsaber and I went, oh, my God, that's just that's just an hour on the lathe. What the <laughs> hell is that? And, and just to prove the point, I did that. One night at the shop I was at, I stayed and it, it took actually took me three hours to, 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 to do it. But I did and I left it there on the desk the next day. I wasn't even in. Mm -hmm. I just left it on my table and it was funny because when I came back, everybody's like, wow, that was great. Did, did you make, wow. You know? and I, and I was like, yeah. And it's really disturbingly simple and sick and I can only imagine that the, the actual people that made it mm -hmm. probably spent hours like machining that thing. But, sure. but it, it's the same sort of thing. And so, yeah. The Green Goblin um, thing, getting back to that, sorry. Um, was the Green Goblin mostly foam construction, or were you using uh, resin or fiberglass? Uh, no, that was that was foam, but uh, that was a big challenge because I was sewing. Uh, uh, but up until that point, actually, I've done a number of replica costumes sewing, mm -hmm. but that was, I think, the first time where I sort of tackled everything mm -hmm. all at once. I, I leaped into the deep end and went, okay, I've already done this foam stuff for other people. I can do it for myself. You right, know? right. And I did consider doing the fiberglass route, but... For me, fiberglass back then was the way that normal people did it in the shop. Right. You sculpted something out of clay. You made a mold with silicone. You made a jacket out of stone. And then you would 
have it in two halves you'd fiberglass each half and then you put it together and you'd seam it i mean this was how i was doing stuff professionally and for one the money to do that i was just like oh my god that's insane and then two the time like to do a full mask from beginning to end under the best circumstances is still like two days Oof. you know and i was foam fabricating entire helmets in a matter of hours oh. so for me it was sort of like do the one time and you're done. Mm -hmm. And the goblin was tough because I, I ended up getting a bobblehead right. and doing a trick that one of my mentors taught me is you take aluminum foil and you wrap it on the piece and you press it into all the, the nooks and crannies. And then you very carefully, you draw lines and you cut it off. And as you cut it off, you don't press it down flat. You keep cutting darts into it like a pattern mm -hmm. until it lays flat. Then you can take that and you can Xerox that and enlarge it. And you, you, and you have almost the pattern you need. I mean, it's really close, amazingly well if you do it right. And many times we've done stuff like that. I mean, like adipose is a great example of that. Right. I, to help my wife out, I did the understructure for her, the patterning. And um, I sculpted something that's only about an inch high by like an, an inch wide. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I can't tell you why that worked, but that little tiny sculpture got the body form and the body pod, as we call it, right. So that one I wrapped in foil, and then I traced that foil. Then I made another one that was the, the one, I've seen, I'm sure you've seen the, the mock-up that's like about uh, yes. five inches tall or yes, something. Yes, rehearsed with that. Yeah, there you go, there you go. And that was the, the big test. Once I knew the patterns worked at that point, then I went to Kinko's and I just like enlarged, you know, <laughs> like 400% on everything, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, but those are, you know, Goblin was like that, and that's how I did the helmet. And the helmet was a one-off. I, I might still have the patterns, but I did a lot of modifications. I put it together with the patterns, and I could see stuff was, like, bulging here, and it, and it was too short there, and it was, like, too long in other places. So I had to, once the helmet was done, I had to go back in and cut out sections and mm -hmm. re-glue them. And it was sort of, yeah, it was definitely a learning experience, but... The goblin head was, yeah, for a long time there. A lot of people were very impressed when they saw that head because it was one of those things that I guess, you know, I, I was determined to make it look like the movie. So I, I got really close. And then, but the suit, yeah, I had to hand sew the entire suit. And that was, that was my first experience with multiple layers of foam between two layers of fabric. So you get that sort of pleated like a plushy effect because right. the entire suit was this ribbed looking thing and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's what I did was I laid all the sheets flat and of course I didn't do it right I mean I should have been cutting curves and sewing curves mm -hmm. so that when you roll it it looks like a curve mm -hmm. instead I had two flat sheets that I sewed straight lines across and when you turn it inside out like you do on a, a normal pattern or right side out at that point it had this sort of uh, very coney angular quality about it it wasn't uh, yeah. smooth and curvy and these are the things you learn the more you you sort of build costumes and you sew and stuff but um but yeah i had to sew that entire suit and then i i had to shape the the little plant on pieces that were fiberglass but mm. i i did those out of foam and and that was another first for me because i'm used to trying to do what they call fabricating uh, a square instead of cutting a square right and and so for me it was it was cutting the squares and then going in with a razor blade or a dremel and dremeling and shaping it down which i i actually worked at a place a couple of years back where that's all they do i mean they were making entire costumes that way where they would take huge blocks of foam mm -hmm. and shave them and carve them and do all this other stuff and then then they would go in with a knife and core out the center so your head could fit in <laughs> it was to me it was so backwards but for them it worked very fast and and then they, and once again 
a kind of that proof that you can you're never too old to learn something new. Sure. I learned like two things about foam that I never thought was possible, and these guys did it, and I was like, "Wow, okay, that's it. I'm going to try this from now on." So, <laughs> so, but I love that, and it did make me realize too that I am stagnating, sort of, at the day job. I really should kind of get back into the industry because there are newer techniques. People are changing the way that things are made, mm-hmm. and it's sort of that's the great thing about the longer you stay in the business, don't stay in one place. Don't be afraid to kind of venture to other shops because the more you experience all these other places, the more you meet new people that have new ideas. Mm-hmm. And this is how you you challenge yourself and grow as a person. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people that just kind of one shop, got the right pay rate, and that's it. That was the rest of their life was sitting in this corner, you know, making props or sculpting or, or whatever. And they didn't learn anything other than that. And and I thought it was kind of sad, you know. And when you I risk was, getting left behind. Yeah. Or yeah. maybe not, but, you know. I it depends. I mean, if you're in that shop and you can keep up, then, hey, more power to you. You're, mm-hmm. you know, you're on easy street at that point. So. Right, right. But, no, it's very good to, to be able to always learn and, and especially, as you say, uh, meet people and network, which is so important in the business. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's not. It's not. What was it? It's not uh, who you know, but who you blow. <laughs> that was that was a favorite among some of the shops we were at. So, oh man. I, I mean, the, the the quick end cap to that story is that when I made the suit, the whole time I was making the suit, they were announcing on the radio a contest because. Uh, the DVD was coming out mm-hmm. at that point. And, of course, it was October 31st. We're going to release the DVD midnight, November 1st. Mm-hmm. You know, So come on down to Best Buy and win yourself in your costume contest, win yourself a DVD player, like a Sony DVD. And, and the whole week I was building that thing, my friends were all coming over going, okay, don't forget to go get your DVD player, Mel. You know, it's <laughs> waiting for you. Don't, don't, you know. Uh-huh. And there was that, that joke about it. Well, I ended up barely making to the contest. Mm-hmm. And... They thought I was part of the the whole like, official Sony hired yeah. license guy. Oh yeah, I took like hundreds of photos. That was that first experience of mm-hmm. like the, the 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 drug, you know. Ah, <laughs> like, the addiction uh, starts. Oh yeah, yeah totally. Because I, I I took pictures with the kids. I took pictures with the employees. I took and it was funny too because I'm like, they're like wow goblin what are you here for and I'm like I'm here for the contest you know and they're like what. No, you didn't make that. No, you know, yeah, I, yeah, I got yeah. all those sort of. I don't believe you made that thing, and and I did win. It, it was sort of by default, but I I did win, and that was the beginning of that feeling of like, wow, so I could wear a costume, I can go out and take pictures of people, and I could possibly win things too. Oh God, no, I'm I, I've gone down the deep end. <laughs> you yeah, know, I'm you're I'm in the rabbit sold. hole now. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was basically your first masquerade win in a way. Yeah, 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 they, definitely. Mm. So. Um, beyond that, God, I'm trying to think because um, that definitely. Oh, what was the next big one after that? Um, God, man, it, it all blurs together. Um, I did a lot of costumes for a friend of mine. He was sort of once he found out because he saw the goblin, he right. thought it was awesome, and he was a big costume guy, and he started paying me to do stuff and, and of course paying me by like um you know he would give me uh free stuff he had or or he would take me out to dinner but he would always pay for materials and that mm-hmm. was sort of the beginning of like the business end of things on the right. side was understanding that i might be able to give away my labor but i there's a minimum somebody else had to pay for the materials oh, all of the course, time always and we made a cobra commander outfit which i know a lot of people have seen his cobra commander a lot of people regard it as some of the one of the best cobra commanders out there mm-hmm. and the irony is that the thing is almost what 15 20 years old wow. and it's still holding up 
very well. Mm -hmm. And it shows you how nuts I went making that suit. But we we went and researched the fabric meticulously. Mm -hmm. We went through like 20 different styles of fabrics to find one that really fit perfectly the real world qualities of it. The reason it's considered one of the better ones is because it looks like something that's real. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like your costume pieces. It doesn't have the costumey colors. Mm -hmm. It has a real sort of shade of blue. It has a real shade of red. It's, it looks like a military uniform because mm -hmm. we went and we researched what is military uniforms made out of? Right. What would it look like if we did it as a dictator? What would a dictator wear? You know, right. It was all these thoughts that, that went into it. And so I started doing stuff for him. I did the Cobra commander outfit. That was also another one where I made metal buttons. I mm -hmm. made custom. I mean, we. I, I. I was working at a place that made um, um, SLAs, uh, stereolithography, which is an art of growing things at a tank using a, a light, uh, an ultraviolet light traces over light sensitive resin and everywhere it traces it solidifies mm -hmm. and it just keeps growing things layer by layer nowadays they have um, machines where it's kind of a dust powder that they lay an ink over that's colored and that ink when it touches that powder it solidifies in right. your resin mm -hmm. so that's how you get these 3d prototypes they, it's called rapid prototyping and, and i was there at the cutting edge of all this stuff by one of the engineering original companies that did it and i didn't even know what it was and i was like wow this is great but we had the buttons made that way and then i made molds and we poured them in metal so mm -hmm. i mean i was out to like go crazy with that one and of course i've never been able to match that <laughs> I, I don't think i've ever successfully poured metal after that it was it was so hard to do and that's where we lose the signal for this episode come on back for the second half of my discussion with malachi keller we're going to get into iron man cyberman and all kinds of other fun robot projects so if you have any questions just go to www.costumestationzero.com and i'll be happy to answer anything and uh you know entertain thoughts and notions and any other suggestions you might have so this is bob mitch signing off for costume station zero